Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome to 17 Minutes of Science, the Quarantine Chronicles. This is a redux of our what turned out to be a podcast on Tuesday because of technical difficulties and we were not visible. So you heard voices, but you didn't see faces, but we're back to do it again today. My name is Sarah Cheeseman, and I am a technical solutions scientist at NEMA Metrics. And my background is in developmental biology and genetics. And I am a big model organism fan, having worked in both zebrafish and Drosophila model systems in neurobiology and also bacterial host interactions. So thank you for coming back and hanging out with us today from home or wherever you are, as we are in social distancing mode. But despite being apart, we can gather here to talk about interesting science, current topics, and sort of a speed, speed uh, dating style. So today we are here to talk about the novel coronavirus, which is of course extremely timely. Very lucky to have an expert in our midst, uh, the wonderful Dr. Janice Weeks, who is the University of Oregon Professor Emerita and co-founder of NEMA Metrics. And before I introduce Janice, I just wanna say, feel free to drop us questions over Facebook, say hi if you're there, and uh, we'll do our best to incorporate questions. So with that, Janice, I'll turn it over to you to introduce yourself with a real quick snapshot of your background. Thanks, Sarah. Um, yeah, briefly, I've, uh, well, I'm a neuroscientist and I trained first as an undergrad at MIT, then grad school at UC San Diego, postdoc at University of Washington, and then started my lab at UC Berkeley, and then was recruited to come to University of Oregon Institute of Neuroscience uh, in 1988, and I've been here um, since then. Well, that sounds like you've you've been all over the coastlines from east yes. to west. <laughs> and now, for those of you who who know, Janice is actually talking to us from the beach today. So she's literally on the coast. Yeah, literally. We, we will hope there's no tsunami while we're while right. We're... We have yeah. enough going on. We don't need to think about that as well. Yeah. <laughs> so when you um, were first doing doing lab work, was that you mentioned neurobiology, but was there any virology there in the early days? Yeah, actually, um, the first bench lab experience I did was as an undergraduate working on bacteriophage, which are viruses that um, infect bacteria rather than, say, mammalian cells. So that's how I got started. And my first publication um, is on bacteriophage. And then, uh, and that was through an NSF summer program. So I know a lot of scientists in the US, their first undergraduate, our first lab experience as an undergraduate is often through these NSF programs. So that was true of me as well. And then um, I subsequently focused on um, neuroscience, which is what I've done since then. But it all sort of has arced back to the beginning now because of your more recent interest, it sounds like, in, um, in tropical medicine and related subjects. So tell us a bit more about that. You, um, you retired from the university, but have had a, a long interest in teaching in this area. Yeah, um, let me start with retirement. So I retired from U of O in 2017, and that's because my friend and colleague, Sean Lockery, and I co-founded Nemometrics. Um, and over, and that was in 2011. And over time, it just became clear that I couldn't, I didn't have enough bandwidth to do, run my lab at the university and spend enough time at Nemometrics. So I um, left UVO, but I do go back and teach one course a year. 
And I don't teach neuroscience anymore. I teach a course on tropical disease in Africa. And so it's infectious and parasitic diseases. And that came about because for over 20 years, I've been teaching uh, neuroscience and neurology courses in Africa at different locations through the International Brain Research Organization. So I got interested in tropical medicine and infectious and parasitic disease um, through the time I spent in Africa. So I go back, even though I'm retired, I go back and teach one course a year on that topic at U of O. And that just finished up. And the last week of the course, which was finals, uh, we went to remote teaching. So I was spared most of the remote teaching, which so many people are going through right now. Right. It's a new world, trying to figure out how to do everything in this way that we're talking right now. So how long have you taught that class? Oh, I started in the mid-2000s because I was interested in changing my research direction a little to align more with my global health work. So it's probably 2004-ish. Oh, wow. Course, and then also a course on HIV AIDS in Africa. Um, and both courses are both biomedical and also socioeconomic context of disease, which I, I personally think you can't teach one without the other. Of course, that stands to reason. And how, how was it to be teaching this course and to have this, this pandemic really begin to unfold in real time? How did students respond to that reality? Yeah, it was funny because I do a big segment in the course on emerging infectious disease and pandemics. And of course, the, we first heard about the virus, SARS-CoV-2 in early January, at least those of us uh, paying attention to outbreaks. And so, but by the time that I got to that topic in the course, it was really, um, you know, a big topic. And so it, it, you know, the virus started in China, so not Africa, and I focus on African uh, viruses, but I show the movie Contagion in that course every year anyway, and it turns out that's become a huge hit during the current uh, COVID situation. So anyway, we had a lot to talk about in terms of the ongoing events mm. unfolding in front of us. I'm sure that students will never forget the intersection of those two things that they in your course and that this unfolded. I know students now who have taken your course in years past and they have told me it's one of the most influential things they did while a student at the University of Oregon. So you yeah. You do a fantastic job at making, making that material really accessible um, and it's so impactful to students. And we're living it, our own version of it right now. And do you think reflecting on this new novel, the novel coronavirus, do you think that, that this outbreak was predictable in some way? Well, yeah. Um... It's sort of like the big earthquake that's overdue here in the Pacific Northwest. We know on paper and you know in simulations and modeling that it's due and will happen sometime, but we don't know exactly when. So epidemiologists and people who study emerging infectious disease, um, I mean, there's emerging infect infectious disease jumping from animals into humans all the time, but. Um, have those having pandemic potential are, are rarer. So anyway, it's not at all, it, the, the SARS-CoV-2 outbreak is 
such a classic poster child for emerging infectious disease. Um, so I was not, but the thing is, we didn't know when it would happen. You never know where uh, a pathogen will emerge and what kind of virus it'll be and how it's going to be transmitted and travel around the world. But just the fact that there has been a pandemic um, going right now, I think that is not surprising to people in global health. Mm. Yes, of course. We've been hearing that message over and over again. And I'm reflecting on something you just said that triggered a thought that I have found in all the onslaught of information that we are receiving on a daily, hourly basis, it seems right now, that some of the most extraordinary imagery has been the infographics that the scientific community and others have been generating about how quickly this has spread. And to see that uh, those lines tracing around the globe within a matter of days, um, to have connected us all. It's really just, I mean, we know these things, but it's just so striking to see it illustrated in that way. Yeah, I've been really impressed by the graphics and um, places like New York Times to just be able to muster the amount of experts and people that make the graphics and provide accurate information, um, especially in a visually accessible way. So conveying scientific information in a way that's accessible is really um, pretty amazing. And I think- yeah, And totally critical for, for public health as, as we're learning from how different um, responses have been across the country. Mm -hmm. We're living the, the consequences of that right now. And I, I was just reading a report yesterday, which perhaps you saw too, Janice, that here in Oregon, we're fortunate that our efforts to shelter in place seem to be working in the suppression of spread. And yet we're seeing in other places where those measures were adopted far too late, what the huge ramifications of that are. Yeah, and as you say, Oregon's been pretty lucky and for whatever reason, I think people have been really um, sticking with uh, social distancing routines. So, so far we're relatively fortunate, but um, yeah, eternal vigilance. Yeah, important. that's right. People, and and uh, to think that, that now we might be um, given guidance that in some urban areas, people might want to even cover their faces, not necessarily with a surgical mask, but to cover their faces just to leave home because of how infectious this virus is. In fact, if you could take a moment and just reflect on that because it seems that this virus is, is very clever compared to, to other related viruses. Mm -hmm. So SARS-CoV-2 is an RNA virus. Um, there are also DNA viruses, but there's a few things um, that have struck me about it in terms of where it stands among uh, emerging infectious disease. First of all, as you alluded to the uh, infectiousness of people is really interesting. So a lot of um, respiratory disease, you're able to transmit the virus uh, when you're sick, you know, so with fever, other um, symptoms, but uh, the current for COVID-19, people apparently are carriers and spreaders of virus before the um, symptoms come on. And then even after symptoms have resolved, um, you can stay uh, contagious for a certain amount of time. And so the whole role of testing and all this is so important to see not just, oh, 
is a given person infected, but are they able to transmit viruses to other people? So I think the appreciation of that has prompted this increased interest in masks for just general people. Absolutely. And to think that there's quite a significant amount of time, both before and after a person has symptoms, that they can be expelling virus into the environment and be completely unaware of that. It is very alarming to think about that as we move through our days and grateful that that we are sheltering in place to really try and minimize that. Yeah, and there's a couple other interesting things about the this virus. And one is that, as people are probably aware, um, viral diseases, respiratory diseases like seasonal flu, are especially dangerous to the oldest people and also infants and children. But SARS-CoV-2 is relatively sparing of children and infants. So we're not seeing serious cases in the young, but we are in the the, uh, older population. And that's not fully understood yet. And then finally, another thing interesting about it is it affects, you know, infects the upper respiratory tract, but SARS-CoV-2 has this tendency to also go into the deep um, respiratory um, system. So in the lungs, for example, which is how you, how patients end up with these severe uh, cases of pneumonia, which is then what requires the ventilators and very um, intensive uh, medical care during that phase. Mm, I know. It seems like once it's got its grip, it's really difficult to beat it. We've had a question come in. This is a great question. Uh, not sure who sent it, so thank you to that to that listener. Uh, we've seen that researchers are working to fast track the uh, vi- vaccines against this novel virus by skipping uh, key animal testing first. Is there a role for non-mammalian model organisms to help accelerate this, such as elegans and zebrafish and, and other non-mammalian systems? Well, uh, there certainly is for drug development, like drugs that are targeting certain uh, proteins or certain viral components. Um, I would say it's less so for vaccine development because the whole basis of vaccine development is uh, training the immune system to react to certain antigens. And so uh, ultimately, so I know there's a lot of work in primate models and um, moving into um, humans for the vaccine work, but um, other animals have different immune systems. So I would say yes, drug development, but yes, less so for the actual vaccine development that has to deal with the peculiarities of the mammalian immune system and then the human immune system in particular. So it's really about putting together all these tools in the pipeline of trying to speed things along, but Mm -hmm. yeah, that makes sense. Um, There is no replacement for a mammalian system when you're trying to to study a lot of those nuances around immune response. Yeah, I mean, other animals obviously have immune systems of different types, but um, they're, they're different. Mm, so yes, there's some important work that can be done, but ultimately primates are probably the most uh, germane animal model. Mm. In our last minute, as we're heading down the stretch, we're just to come back to, to your uh, longtime interest in visiting Africa and teaching. Have you ever been there on the continent during an outbreak? Yeah, so as I mentioned, I've been teaching for over a couple of decades for the International Brain Research Organization. 
and we teach workshops on neuroscience and neurology teaching. And in 2014, I think the workshop was held in Kinshasa, which is in the Democratic Republic of Congo, which does have occasional Ebola outbreaks. And there was one um, that November when we were supposed to be there in Kinshasa, the capital. So the outbreaks were farther east in the country. So my colleagues and I decided to go and teach but what we were all worried about is that the borders might be closed because it was a substantial outbreak. So I was worrying whether I might get stuck in the country um, for the rest of the year or whatever. So anyway, we did get out. Okay, some other African participants did have some challenges leaving the country, but um, I fortunately got out and back home. Mm. So yeah. Well, that also that brings it into stark relief too, when when we have options for for leaving and going to places that are that are uh, safer too. That is not the reality this time around. There is the timer. We did it. So thank you, Janice, for taking another seventeen minutes this week to chat about this topic. Again, I learned new things this time as well sharing your experiences with all of us here and all of our listeners. So if you have further questions for Janice, you can uh, drop them into the Facebook feed. You can also send an email to support at nemometrics.com. So thank you again, everybody, and stay tuned. Oh, nice to talk to you, Sarah. Yes, it always oh, is nice, nice to see, see other human beings. You know, I feel like I've seen more of you on a screen lately than- Yeah. <laughs> so we'll look forward to seeing everybody in this format. Uh, for the next episode. In the meantime, stay safe. And Janice got the last word la last time. So I'm going to let you say what you said again, if you remember. Oh, go wash your hands. Go wash your hands. All right. Take care, everybody.